Hello everyone. Hi, this is George Yaglis. Uh, welcome to week nine of uh, the University of Nicosia's uh, free MOOC on NFTs and the Metaverse. Uh, today's topic is uh, trends in uh, visualization technology. So we are in the, in the second week of uh, addressing Metaverse related issues. And as we also did in the beginning of the course, before introducing NFTs, we discussed uh, about Ethereum and underlying technologies uh, providing a foundational infrastructure for, uh, for non-fungible tokens. We're going to do the same uh, with the metaverse. So today's lecture is going to be more technical in nature. We're going to be discussing recent trends in, uh, in visualization. We're going to see augmented and virtual reality and try to capture how these things fit into the metaverse vision. And because this is a very specialized uh, topic, I am uh, honored to be joined by two colleagues who are experts in, uh, in the space and will be covering the majority of the, of the presentation today. So without further ado, let me introduce you to the first uh, speaker, who is uh, none other than uh, Chris Christou, uh, a colleague of mine at the University of Nicosia, associate professor and head our, of our uh, VR lab. So Chris, the, the floor is yours. Thank you very much, George. Uh, welcome. Welcome to the first part of uh, uh, this session. Um, I'm going to cover if uh, I'm going to cover um, 3D rendering, visualization, and computer graphics in this part, and then my colleague George will uh, talk about its uses in virtual and augmented reality. Uh, visualization comes in all forms. It's pervasive uh, throughout our lives. Uh, it's used to uh, render simulations of um, architecture, of chemical reactions, of crowd simulations, uh, fluid dynamics. So computer graphics is pretty much everywhere. Um, the origins of visualization uh, come from, I guess, uh, uh, cave drawings, but um, more recently from architecture. So. If somebody wanted to, for example, uh, create a building, they would go to an architect and they would uh, create some drawings for them. These drawings would be um, orthographic in nature to preserve parallel lines, to preserve the, uh, uh, the shape in order for it to be constructed correctly. Um, and if they got it wrong, they would have to go back to the client, uh, go back to the drawing board as it were. So, uh, this is a, a long drawn out process. Uh, this has been replaced by uh, computer aided design or CAD. Uh, everything is three dimensional now. Uh, we can uh, walk through a model. We can fly through a model of a building or a city um, long before it's, uh, it's even created. We can also simulate the, uh, the lighting um that's available in a building at a particular time of day at a particular location um so things have changed an awful lot uh looking forward we imagine that uh, developments in haptics uh, auditory representation olfaction even 
will mean that we don't have just visualization, we will have perceptualization in some time in the, in the future. These are the enabling technologies that uh, have helped us along. Um, primarily the hardware, uh, the graphical processing unit, the GPU, uh, that is in every device that everyone has in their pockets, in their mobile phones, or uh, in their computers. They can render millions upon millions of polygons uh, per second. Um, and these uh, made, the, made, made it possible, basically, for virtual reality and augmented reality to, to happen. Uh, we have high-resolution displays, and this includes the organic LEDs that we have uh, in, uh, in our VR devices. Computer vision, AI, machine learning, deep learning are all contributing now to uh, developments in 3D graphics. So computer vision is uh, fine. It's responsible. It's the field where you you study how to find structure in the world, whereas graphics is actually the process of represent of um, rendering that that structure, and they're, they're forming a, a happy a happy collaboration. Um, and then finally, uh, we have lidar and structure for motion. These are uh, techniques of finding structure of representing um, our real world and putting this into a computer model. I'm going to talk about the history of uh, graphics, first of all, and explain some of um, the processes that go into rendering computer graphics to give uh, the, the viewers an idea of what com computer graphics is. And then I'll end with um, a few examples of very recent works. So a brief history of CGI, computer-generated uh, imagery. Um, it was very much influenced by Edwin uh, Katmar, Pat Hanrahan, and Jim Blinn. Um, Edwin Katmar was responsible, uh, was one of the co-founders of Pixar, which went on to create uh, the and yet short animation, Luxo, Luxo Jr., which is available on, uh, on YouTube even to this day. Um, and, and this resulted in computer graphics being used throughout the uh, movie industry and uh, uh, throughout uh, in entertainment. Uh, so uh, these guys were also instrumental in the development of the GPU, and uh, and, uh, and as we, as I just mentioned, uh, this is what's made uh, everything possible on uh, on uh, mobile device high resolution displays on mobile devices, computer games on mobile devices, and uh, uh, very great games in uh, on our on our PCs. Uh, so behind any graphics is the graphics rendering pipeline. So on the, on the left, on the one side, you have your application. This is your computer game. This is your, um, your VR simulation, let's say. And you want, to get the, you want to get the graphics from that out to the screen on the right-hand side. Okay, so somewhere in there, you've got the geometry, you've got uh, 
whatever it is that's uh, moving, the zombies that are uh, chasing you, uh, and you want to project that onto the onto the screen. So that involves various uh, various stages of uh, occlusion detection, seeing what um, what is visible from the screen, uh, working out the colors, etc. The rasterization process is the process of actually drawing something onto the screen, and most of this is done uh, in a scanline order. So when we talk about scanline, we mean that um, we refer to the pixels of the screen being broken up into a rectangular grid. And we usually start at the top uh, left-hand side, we went to the right-hand side, and we zigzag all the way down to the bottom. This is how we get a, a 2D image. When we think of the graphics process itself, um, there is a virtual camera and uh, there is our geometry. And uh, wherever the virtual camera is, this is what we are projecting onto the screen. If we're talking about virtual reality, uh, let's say uh, an immersive headset, then this virtual camera is essentially controlled or moved by your head. So when you move your head, the virtual camera moves in the virtual environment. A lot of you have heard of um, uh, ray tracing. So um, this is important uh, for a little bit later in, uh, in what I have to say. So uh, I'll mention it here. Uh, so ray tracing, quite simply, is tracing rays from the eye through each of the pixels um, on our screen. And then if uh, these rays don't hit anything, they don't uh, uh, intersect with any object in the scene, then we just paint the pixel black. If the ray goes through a pixel and it hits an object, in this case at the point X, then we have to ca calculate what color um, uh, to paint the pixel. Now, this color depends on, uh, when, on the light. Uh, so it's a simple function of uh, the surface orientation the surface normal, we call it at that point, and the angle it makes with the with the light source, and this is pretty intuitive. So if the if the um, if the surface is pointing towards the light, then it gets more energy, and it's brighter. Uh, if it's pointing away from the light source, of course, it it receives no illumination and it will be uh, dark. So that's a very very simple uh, simplistic. Uh, illumination um, model. So uh, these illumination models made up the core of uh, uh, computer graphics uh, research uh, in, in the last in the in the early stages of computer graphics. Okay, so these researchers were, were busy coming up with models uh, of how to best uh, represent the um, uh, the various effects that we have in the real world, uh, the various shading effects that we have in the real world. One of the earliest models is the Fong model. Um, and this can be explained uh, by the diagram at the bottom left here. So we can break up the illumination of any object, in this case, this funny-looking shape, into three components. The first one is the ambient component, which is like light from everywhere. Um, it adds nothing to the structure, 
nothing to the shading. Uh, it just ensures that the whole object is illuminated even though um, it's not facing the, the light source. The next component is the diffuse component or the inversion component. And this, uh, this does, the, as, we, as we saw in the previous slide, this um, is orientation dependent and it adds the, the shading uh, that you can see here. And the final component is the specular. So specularity is uh, the, the shiny highlights that you get on glass and uh, shiny surfaces. So there's a, a nice representation on the right-hand side uh, where you can see that the process is not as straightforward as, uh, as you uh, might, as I've just described, as you might imagine. Uh, we have refraction, uh, we have reflection, we have different, different types of reflection, we have uh, diffuse reflection, we have specular reflection. Uh, so coming up with a, um, an illumination model that actually captures all of this is hard, but the benefits are that you get towards our aim, which is photorealistic uh, graphics, okay, photorealism. Another complication is the fact that in the real world we have uh, indirect illumination and this is uh, uh, ni nicely uh, portrayed here. So in the image on the left, uh, we have uh, a scene where there is no indirect illumination. On the right, we have a scene which is rendered with global illumination. Uh, so let me describe what's going on. The shading patterns across this, this image are a function not just of the direct light sources. So this one from the window, for example, or from here. Uh, there's also light bouncing off the floor onto the ceiling, bouncing back again. So all of this light that's bouncing around in the environment is causing uh, these uh, the smooth shading uh, that you can see illumination of the ceiling essentially, which has no no light, direct light shining on it. So things are, are not as uh, simple as uh, as we would hope in the real world. Uh, more about that later. Um, so let, let me uh, describe now just uh, content generation, which is the stuff, the geometry, the stuff that's actually in our computer game, that's in our um, television commercial. Uh, if it's 3D, it's going to have been made in some uh, a 3D editor. This is the interface for 3D Studio Max. The first thing to note is that everything is uh, polygonized. So everything consists of uh, uh, polygons. They're usually flat, as flats, sim simple surfaces. And we join them all together, and not one by one, but uh, we join them all together to make curved surfaces. On the right, you may see, you may be able to, to make out that there are basic primitive shapes of boxes, for example, and spheres. And these are used to create more complicated objects. You may also note the uh, teapot, and this is just the Utah teapot. I've put a link there. It's a very special teapot that's been used for computer graphics research for uh, the last 40 uh, or so years. Um, 
characters, avatars, character modeling. Uh, there's no difference here. They, they still consist of polygons. Um, the special thing about 3D characters or avatars is that they have a biped rig or a biped skeleton, which is the actual thing that does the animation. So if we're talking about um, uh, animated games, for example, uh, somebody has to create the animations and uh, piece the animations together. This can be done with keyframing or it can be done with motion capture where a real actor performs the motions and then these motions are um, used to move the virtual character. Um, at the bottom, just a brief mention about this. We can do crowd simulation. This is uh, something from my own work. So uh, where we're simulating how uh, annoyed people get, we're measuring how annoyed people get when they're surrounded by crowds. Uh, but you can also use it for um, uh, escape route planning, for example, uh, you know, to simulate what happens when, when there's a fire in a building. So this is a multi-character multi scenario where we've got many, many non-player characters in the in the scene. Again, these are no, no different from the um, uh, uh, the character models that I mentioned previously, you know, probably just a lower resolution. Um, we're looking at um, current trends now in the last few slides. So uh, LiDAR uh, is used uh, throughout for uh, uh, measuring uh, uh, distance for uh, getting a structure or a spatial structure. Um, so the principle here is the, the same as, uh, as an echo. It takes a while for light to, um, projected light to bounce back from um, surfaces. So uh, we can measure the time that it takes for light to, to come back to an emitter. Um, in this case, uh, it's available on consumer devices like the iPad Pro. Um, from this, we get uh, a, a, um, a pixelated version of, uh, of, of the image in front of us, so a point map. And the point map can be turned into a depth map, which is just an encoding of how far um, objects are away from us, the relative depth. And in turn, this uh, depth map can be turned into um, a structure, into a, a 3D model. And this is used throughout the modern tech that you will hear about uh, that later on. So all of the devices that, uh, uh, for example, the, uh, the MetaQuest, uh, that use this to work out um, where it is in the room and uh, all uh, augmented reality glasses use this to work out the surfaces on which to project their graphics. Uh, this is uh, some exciting work that's done by Meta, formerly known, known as uh, Facebook. Um, so here they're, they're actually getting the structure of human beings, of people, so people would go in here and they would have their head scanned or their body scanned. So this is a multi-camera rig and a multi-light rig, just to ensure that there are no shadows. Uh, it's used to extract the, um, the structure of somebody's face in this case, or, or, and also the, the textures of the face. 
And then uh, deep learning can be used to uh, reconstruct expressions that um, a device uh, such as the, the Quest, for example, or the future Quest uh, detects that the user is making. So if somebody's grimacing, then their avatar will be grimacing in the metaverse. Uh, this, if you have a, so light fields, I'm going to talk about light fields. If you have a, a Steam um, account uh, or HTC Vive or MetaQuest, it's worth, worth um, downloading. Google's welcome to light fields. So uh, previously I was talking about uh, getting the structure of, of a person. Now you're getting the structure of the environment. Um, and that, this is a... Um, a wonderful demonstration of uh, of how realistic graphics can be. So what what Google have done here is they've mounted uh, a number of uh, GoPro uh, cameras on, onto this rotating rig, and they're basically sampling the amount of light uh, in the room. Okay, and then as the uh, as the rig is rotating around, they're calculating that they're sampling the light structure of that room, the uh, so-called light field. Okay, if you store this, you can um, play it back to somebody. And then the feeling is uh, is not just one of, uh, of realism, but it's also, it's also um, a way to capture the specular um, parts, uh, spe the specular components of, uh, of the surfaces in your scene, uh, shiny surfaces, etc. Um, light fields, that, um, in particular, I would not mention too much about this as we are um, we need to progress. But if you if you want to capture uh, the full extent of, of light in a scene, you re really need to use a, a multi-camera grid. I'm showing in this uh, in this middle diagram. Um, you can also use a planoptic camera. Um, so. In the in the Google case, they were using multiple GoPros which were rotating. Uh, but if you were, well, if you want a, a forward-facing camera, you can use a panoptic camera, uh, which, as you can see, takes small images of the same scene, and you can put these together in order to get uh, uh, motion parallax, in order to get the um, the shine from a um, glass, for example, and uh, uh, in order to uh, see the world uh, or represent the world more realistically. Um, now, if you, if you had a limited number of these samples, you could use a neural network to actually calculate or to represent the space in between. So this is the principle of NERFs. Um, and this is a, a very recent paper by Benjamin Atoll uh, from this year. And th this uh, demonstrates, first of all, the, uh, the power of uh, occlusion effects uh, in depth perception, uh, the power of motion parallax, um, the, the um, realism in specularities and uh, and just the the overall structure. So these were the, these are uh, 
novel views of just a limited number of samples uh, of, of images. Uh, this is the basic principle um, of NERF. So the idea is that you take a, a small uh, subset of images from an object and you create a volumetric representation using a convolutional neural network. Um, this is no, another uh, demonstration of this from NVIDIA's website. I'll put a link um, to this uh, down below. So again, you have limited number of views and the fly-through which is generated uh, by the neural network. Uh, so the thing that you might be thinking at this stage, and especially seeing the image on the on the right hand side, is can we get can we get an actual model out of this? Um, can we get a, a computer model out of this uh, three dimensional neural network um, uh, representation? And the answer is yes, and people are actually working on this. So again, this is very recent work by Mankberg um, taking multi-view images representing these within a, a neural network and outputting uh, a mesh, a, a three-dimensional mesh of the object as well as the textures that uh, are used to paint the detail onto the surface um, and also the light probes. So the, uh, the light probes capture the the uh, specular components. And this can be output straight into your favorite game engine, Unity, uh, for example, or Unreal, or into a 3D editor where they, where they can be um, um, uh, further edited. OK, so that brings me to the end of what I um, wanted to introduce you to in my segment. So uh, we'll pass over to um, my colleague, George. Uh, he will take over. Thank you very much, Chris. Uh, that, that's some fascinating uh, stuff here. Uh, so uh, for those of you, um, uh, the students, I mean, who are interested in this uh, and what uh, George Kutitas is going to, to present in a while, uh, let me tell you that uh, we're working towards creating a follow-up course uh, that will focus on, uh, on, on the upcoming uh, developments in terms of uh, hardware and goggles and masks and headsets and all that stuff. There's some truly fascinating uh, developments happening by, by some big companies and some startups. So we will uh, revisit the space post-Christmas and, and have a specialized course for those that are interested in seeing how our world will change. Uh, so Chris will stay with us uh, until the end and uh, he will be available for questions if you, if you have any. Uh, but before we go to the Q&A, let me introduce uh, our other speaker for the day. Uh, my colleague and uh, friend, uh, uh, George Kutitas. Uh, George is an executive, an entrepreneur, and an academic with uh, more than a decade of experience in, in business and R&D. Uh, he has a multicultural uh, background. He has spent uh, six years in Austin, Texas, uh, five years in the UK, and another six years in, in Greece, where he's currently based. He has founded a startup company in Austin, uh, working on AR and VR and training of uh, first responders. 
and has a number of publications at the, and the patent in the AR and, and VR space. So it's a, it's a great pleasure for me to, to introduce him to the course. Uh, George, are you with us? Yes, Hello. you are. Hello, everyone. Thank you, George, for the warm welcome. Hello, everyone. Can you hear me? I hope you can. George, thank you very much uh, for your warm welcome. Just give me an indication that you can hear me so I can continue. Okay, all right. So uh, I'm very happy to be here with you today and uh, speak to you and introduce you to the concept of uh, extended reality. Some of the things that we are gonna discuss today, probably you might be already aware, but uh, some of them might be new to you and uh, might uh, help you expand your horizons. So we all hear about VR, AR, mixed reality. Let's understand the difference. Virtual reality, a simulated experience, okay? In a fully virtual world, and this is available to you through a 3D near eye displays. So you are fully isolated from the physical environment. You are in a totally virtual environment with graphics presented to you from a display in front of your eyes. On the other hand, augmented reality allows you to interact with the physical world and it uh, um, overlays digital information and content on top of the physical world. Mixed reality, which is now, you know, sometimes we use the same term augmented and mixed reality, is the ability of the digital content to interact with the physical environment. So this means that if you can see the, the third circle, the 3D graphic is behind the sofa and it is in the shadow region of the sofa. The sofa is a physical object in my living room and the robot is a digital content and I can partially see it. This is called mixed reality. Uh, augmented reality, an example of augmented reality <clears throat> was Google Glasses, okay? Or even our smartphones that we can have AR applications. Mixed reality is more modern applications that can be made usually with Microsoft HoloLens and other you know, AR devices. From now on, just to not get confused, AR, MR can be thought of uh, you know almost the same in order to experience ar vr we need to have a head mounted device and as you already know there is a plethora of devices in the market uh, the breakthrough in the hmd head mounted device came from palmer lucky in a kickstarter project this was in 2012 i think that started the oculus Okay, and uh, there was an excitement there and an enabler of the technology because uh, many developers use the development kit, DK1, offered by Oculus. So they were able to create applications in the VR space and uh, people can access them through a marketplace. Uh, in the image here on the left hand, you can see some VR headsets. One is uh, the Oculus Rift. You can see a cable because it required to be connected to the computer for some processing power. You can see the cardboard that you 
put your smartphone in order to act as the VR display. And also you can see the latest versions of Meta Oculus Quest. On the right side, you can see some a couple of examples of AR headsets. We have Google Glasses, Microsoft HoloLens, and Magic Clip. You can see some of the content here. I'm not going to read out to you, obviously. I'm explaining in the images. Feel free to use the slides and you know, dive a little bit uh, deeper in the terms. So we have AR, VR experiences de um, deployed to us through head-mounted devices. What are the applications? There are numer numerous applications that we can uh, uh, experience. And both AR, VR has a little bit struggle in finding the key application areas. So we have seen VR going very deep in the gaming space, but then other application areas may involve, you know, learning and development, remote collaboration and social networks, or even industrial applications. AR the same, but we will see as the time passes that VR is more like on the gaming aspect, and uh, remote collaboration and social networks, whereas AR can be used mainly for industrial manufacturing, construction applications, or learning and development, because it allows us to interact with the physical environment. This is not 100% true. Obviously, we have VR applications in the learning and development or industrial applications, but we have seen these separations on the application areas. And obviously, the reason is that AR allows you to interact with the physical world. Gaming is huge. By 2024, it's going to be 2.5 billion. Uh, remote collaboration, we have companies like Special IO. Agriculture, there is an, a recent trend in uh, the integration of uh, AR with Internet of Things. So we already have augmented reality startup companies that helps farmers personalize, actually optimize uh, the quality of the grow of their fields by either deploying sensor networks and taking measurements of the humidity, etc., or by using smart cameras that allows to optimize where you need to put more water, etc. So there are very, very exciting applications. Learning and development, as we will see a little bit later, VR and AR has a very important advantage compared to traditional, let's say, uh, web uh, training programs. It improves cognitive learning, but also muscle memory. Because you're moving your hands, you can move in the environment, and the brain can remember where items are positioned and what actions you need to do if it is related to a repetitive work. So very fascinating. Obviously, health. We have a lot of applications in the health sector, either in the training, but also during operation. Manufacturing industrial, you don't need to be an expert in order to do a repair. You can download the instructions and you can do the repair at the same time that you are actually doing the repair of machinery or etc. We are not very far away of uh, what we have seen in the movies that you can download something in your, not brain, on your AR device and execute it without being an expert in the field, similar to Matrix. Architecture and construction, obviously there are numerous applications there. So the, the world 
this fascinating and AR VR will definitely be dominating in our lives and our work now and in the future. It's really interesting to see how uh, this technology was evolved. You know, the first HMD head mount device started in 1943. Yes, believe it or not, it's so old. You can see that there was a big gap. Obviously, you know, the technology was not there. User adoption was not there. And then suddenly, in 1960 to 1969, there was a decade of people, you know, with the growth of the computers, they started experiencing, uh, you know, different type of technologies in order to create immersive environments. And the most exciting uh, milestone was in 1962 with um, an immersive experience called Sensorama. If you see the video now, it's going to be funny, but uh, for uh, 1962, it was a breakthrough. You will see that there are waves, bursts, let's say, of evolutions. And now we are in the time that um, the technology, the hardware is there. We have portable devices with very great quality of experience and uh, quality of the graphics. And the time is now to exponentially grow the sector. In the VR space, there are a lot of companies that provide uh, uh, head-mounted devices. Obviously, one of the most uh, well-known is uh, Meta, Oculus. They bought the company some years ago. And uh, they focus initially on the gaming aspect, and they had more like a B2C approach, business to consumer. So they addressed the consumer market, and there was the first, let's say, uh, exponential adoption of uh, the device. Obviously, there are other companies out there like Google, HTC Vive, Samsung, etc. And remember, in the VR space, it all started with Sensorama. Uh, I highly recommend to see this video to understand, you know, how 60 years ago, you know, people uh, created the first immersive uh, experience. If we focus on one product, the most famous, let's say Oculus Quest, you will see that it started with um, a passive VR experience without any type of controllers. So it was more like visualization. Then we had the Oculus Rift that was connected to a PC in order to provide some required processing power. Then we had Go and Oculus Quest that they work with battery and in a standalone manner, so you don't need to connect it to a computer. And then we had the uh, MetaQuest Pro that was recently announced that it introduces very cool features like uh, mixed reality. You can see that in the front part of the display, there are cameras that allows you to perform you know, gestures and you can use your actual hands. You don't need a joystick. And uh, the level of uh, experience and the graphics has uh, dramatically, dramatically improved compared to different versions. And this evolution is met in all companies. In the AR space, we have also a lot of companies that provide uh, devices. The most uh, famous one is Microsoft HoloLens, uh, Magic Leap. Meta is still uh, present in the AR space with um, what they call Spark AR. It's a platform that anyone can create um, AR experiences that are used in the, on the mobile device. They don't have uh, an AR headset yet, at least available in the market.
Magiclip is uh, an important company to see because um, there was an initial hype back in 2014. I think they raised a lot of uh, money for a huge amount of uh, valuation. Uh, the company was not ready to provide the product and they didn't address uh, the right niche market to penetrate in the market. And that's why there was uh, more like an idle mode for this startup company. But recently we see a lot of uh, uh, motion and evolution coming from uh, MagicLip since they trimmed their business model uh, to more like enterprise AR and use cases related to health. So we expect to see a lot of uh, growth and a lot of new cool new features from uh, MagicLip too. Obviously, a recent trend is uh, coming from the metaverse. So imagine we have AR, VR companies, we have computer graphics companies, and now we have companies in the metaverse space, either by creating 3D environments, either by creating you know, serious games and uh, interactive environments like uh, Roblox Corporation, um, Decentraland, etc. It's, um, it's going to be fascinating to see what type of collaborations, acquisitions, or merges are going to happen between the AR, VR, and the metaverse space. So I, I'm sure that in the next uh, years, we are going to see a lot of action in this space. But let's see what is happening inside a headset. What is inside? What type of electronics do they have? Obviously, these bullet points do not represent the entire technology, but uh, it, they can give you a good high-level overview of what exists and what are the main components. Uh, this is uh, the device uh, from uh, Meta, MetaQuest Pro. There are front cameras, depth cameras, in order to understand proximity and gesture tracking. So you can put your hands in front of the cameras, and by moving your fingers, you can see your virtual hands moving with great accuracy. There are also eye tracking sensors, which are important, especially when you do a, like a, a social interaction with another person and the other person can see your eyes, or by optimizing the graphics and the frame rate according to the place that you focus your eyes. There are devices called IMUs, inertial measurement unit, accelerometers, orientation, and other gravitational forces you know, uh, and include uh, accelerometers, gyroscopes, and magnetometers. They are used in order for you to accurately measure position of your hands or the rotation of your head. Time of flight sensors in order to measure distance. Imagine you are entering a room and this physical room that you enter can automatically become a virtual room in your virtual reality experience. So you need depth, depth cameras and time of flight sensor to do that. There are processors, speakers, battery, obviously, and controllers. The controllers of the VR are quite interesting to observe because if you think the user experience, before VR, you have controllers of game consoles. You use both your hands in one device. But now in virtual reality, you can actually physically move. So you cannot have one controller for both of your hands. So the UX of every company out there was responsible to convert 
the controllers that we had in the gaming consoles to two separate controllers with additional sensory device on top of them, accelerometer, gyroscopes in order to simulate the movement of our hands and provide the required user experience for us to interact and play our virtual reality games. And this graph shows, you know, how two different companies, you know, created two different joysticks coming from the concept of uh, the console joystick. But when you don't have a controller, you need uh, uh, to have uh, gestures in order for the device to understand where are your hands and what are the motion of your fingers. And this is achieved both in AR devices and in the AIM VR devices with the cameras that are in front of the headset. So these cameras have the required, let's say, uh, algorithms that power the cameras to understand the motion of the fingers. And according to the different type of motions that you do, you can interact with the virtual environment. So for example, when you do in a Microsoft HoloLens this movement, which is the movement called Bloom, the main menu appears. If you want to click, you need to do this with your finger, not this. This is the gesture. If you want to drag and drop something, you click it and you drop it. So there are different types of uh, gestures in order to allow you to interact with the virtual environment in an AR or in a VR equipment. What type of delivery mechanism and technologies do we have in order to experience AR, VR? There are numerous. Let's go each one of them. WebVR. WebVR is a virtual reality experience, but it is deployed on the browser of your laptop or your computer or wherever you want. Obviously, you don't have uh, all the you know, nice features of VR. It feels like you are playing a 3D game, okay? But uh, it might be right solution according to the program and the application area. So for example, if you want to create a training program for students or people to get familiar with the space, a web VR might be the right place to deploy your experience because it's already available anywhere. Everybody has a browser, okay? Uh, it's very cheap. You don't need to buy any new equipment. On the other hand, if you need to create a more immersive environment like a game or a more immersive training, then you need a full VR experience and deploy your experience on a VR headset. Obviously, the web VR is cheap. Also, the VR cardboard is cheap because the device, uh, the cardboard is almost for free. It's already it very cheap and you, and you only need the smartphone. On the AR space, you can uh, deploy your AR application on a smartphone. I'm sure that you all played Pokemon Go, or I'm sure you all play now AR games on your smartphone. They can be deployed on smart glasses, either Google glasses that I'm not sure if who of you experienced that in the past. I tried them back in 2015. We now have uh, car manufacturers having smart glasses in front of the wheel of the car in order to inform the driver about you know, navigation or specific alerts. And obviously we have AR headsets that you can deploy your AR applications like HoloLens, Magic Leap, et cetera. 
So according to the application, the level of immersion and the use case, you have a plethora of delivery mechanisms, delivery technologies for your AR, VR experiences. Something that it is interesting also in the AR, VR space is haptics. So in order to make the experience even more immersive, we now have gloves that have sense, uh, that can have sensory devices in order to improve the overall experience. So vibrations of your finger, vibration on uh, a suit that you are wearing. So imagine that you are playing, uh, let's say, a game that you are giving a punch to the enemy and you can feel, feel the punch on your chest. Or you are in a forest and you can see a bird flying or the bird is landing on your finger and you can feel it. So all this uh, extra level of immersion is delivered to you through extra hardware equipment that are obviously in a tactile manner communicating really fast with the hair, with a VR headset. And you need to have some extra hardware to experience it. There are other level of uh, immersion in order to have a better VR experience. This is an example. One of the most famous is the treadmill that allows you to run in VR. This was one of the main drawbacks of VR compared to AR. In AR, you can move your hands, but also you can move your body. In virtual reality, you, can move, you cannot move your body. You only have the joystick in order to navigate in the environment. With uh, treadmills, VR treadmills, you are on top of a treadmill, you can run, you can do all the physical movements, and these are translated as locomotion in the VR space. We also have uh, flying simulators, we can have theme parks, etc., in order to increase uh, the level of immersion. Hey, I'm not going to spend too much time on. Uh, two of the most, let's say, commonly used engines to create uh, AR, VR experiences. You know, I'm sure that you are all familiar with Unity and Unreal. Both of them are engines that allows you to create a VR and AR experience. As a very general rule of thumb, Unreal Engine is most widely used in games. It has very good... Uh, graphics where else unity has a lot of libraries that can help you if you want to create a more like trainings and other type of uh, vr experiences but obviously this is not a no a hard rule it is quite commonly met out there so if you are a startup and you are want to create uh, let's say a, not a higher resolution graphic uh, uh, vr experience but more related to training and learning and development unity might be the right tool because there are a lot of languages out there and libraries if you want to create a very realistic uh, game then probably unreal engine might be the right platform for you but obviously depends on you know the use case and the application so now let's move to some of the development challenges that we face nowadays how do you develop a VR experience? Most probably you are aware of agile development process. So let me give you some personal, uh, some, some, I'm gonna give you some uh, of the lessons I personally learned in my startup career. 
creating a VR or an AR training or game, let's say experience, is a time consuming and quite difficult thing to do. This is because there is a plethora of platforms, there is a plethora of uh, devices you can use, there is a plethora of different type of 3D um, objects and environments that you can create. And in most of the cases, what I have seen is that you don't know what really the customer wants, the user. So one of uh, the most commonly to help you on your development of the experience is what we call agile development process that helps you understand what the user needs and what are the challenges, explore the different alternatives you have, experiment, and then materialize. And this is done through interactive cycles with small cross-functional teams. So instead of going and creating a monolithic game or experience that nobody is going to use it, try to make it adaptive and iterative. So we wanted to create a, a virtual reality training for first responders. And this virtual reality training should be delivered in virtual reality, uh, Oculus Quest, and also AR experience using Microsoft HoloLens. So we needed to develop two products, but we didn't even know what the user and the customer wanted. So following some agile and design thinking principles, what we did is we created an MVP with 360 images or 360 videos. And we use InstaVR as a platform to let users experience it. Very easy to do. And to tell you the truth, the budget that you need is less than $500, let's say, or euros. Or zero amount of money. You go in the place, you take 360 images, and then you program in InstaVR an experience. You give it to the users, and you receive a feedback. I would like this feature. I don't like that. I would like to add another feature. So with this iterative process, you know, we start creating progressively uh, experiences in VR and AR. We published that on a VR store, and then we were able to scale it to a large number of users. Uh, I definitely want to give you this advice that don't go and develop something big Focus on an MVP. MVP stands for a minimum viable product and follow agile principles, iterative work in order to, you know, step by step improve your model and your experience. If you want to, to see all the development stages of an AR and VR experience, you know, the most basic steps are the following. Create the 3D environment. Design, create the instructional design, let's say the serious game and the experience behind it. Create some special effects and immersion levels, you know, some special gestures. Define what are going to be the analytics that you need to keep track in order to understand user engagement. Package all of these in an application file and publish it on a marketplace. On every step, there are a lot of questions that you need to answer. These are just a small, tiny portion of the actual questions that exist out there, but it gives you, let's say, an indication of uh, what are the steps involved and what are the main, let's say, uh, obstacles that you need to bypass. In reality, it's 10x of what you see here. Another uh, development challenge is uh, the avatar. Who owns my avatar? 
what type of diversity we need to give to people. It needs to be customizable. I want to have my face on the avatar. Some other people want to be anonymized or wear sunglasses. So giving the creating an avatar is not a simple thing in uh, modern AR and VR experiences. And it is something that is gonna, we are gonna see a lot of innovation in the near future. Another challenge that we met in uh, mainly in virtual reality is what we call motion sickness. Uh, it's an important drawback because I personally experience it sometimes because it doesn't let you uh, experience the entire virtual reality game. After five minutes or 10 minutes, you might feel motion sickness and you might quit, abandon the game. It's quite interesting to see how motion sickness is created. So we have uh, two sensors that detect motion in our body. One is our ear and the other is our eye. Inside our ear, there are some tiny, tiny, tiny sensors that understand, you know, motion. Think of it like an accelerometer uh, inside our ear, okay? And obviously the eye detects motion through uh, the visual. When we experience VR, what is happening is that the brain that is connected to our ear and our eye receive two signals that are opposite. The ear does not feel any type of motion and it sends a no signal motion to the brain, whereas the eye can see the motion because I can see, you know, motion in the virtual reality environment, cars are passing by, you know, I'm flying a plane. And the brain does not know which of these two sensors to trust more because it has an equal trust to both of them. It trusts the ear, it trusts the eye. So in, or in order to defend itself, the brain sends a sickness signal to our stomach. And this forces us to stop whatever we do that creates motion signal to us. So recent trends now in uh, head-mounted devices, in VR headsets, is that it's they are going to include uh, a magnetic sensor, actually an actuator on the ear side, in order to synchronize the motion that the eye detects with an actuator on our ear in order to also detect a fake motion. So motion sickness is something that it's not going to happen from now on in many of the new VR headsets. Another cool uh, challenge that, that um, is happening is uh, what we call teleportation. It's not like actual teleportation, but it's very similar to what we have seen in a Star Wars movie. The idea of uh, teleportation is for me to be able to see a 3D full-scale avatar of the person that I'm communicating with. So imagine that I'm in my room, you are in your room and you can see my 3D body walking inside your room and delivering you this uh, lecture. Uh, there are different types of technologies to do that, either by transferring a large number of pixels in this 3D environment, or by creating a 3D object and setting, putting a skin of uh, how I look on top of it. Obviously, there are different types of cameras and hardware equipment that need to be 
created. I'm not an expert about, on that, but I definitely know that uh, there are a lot of uh, development challenges in the teleportation space. And uh, before I close, another challenge is how we interact with all these huge network of Internet of Things that are out there. Imagine that uh, by 2025, or it might already be happening, you know, non-human centric data, data that are coming from Internet of Things are gonna be larger than human centric data, data that a real human is creating. And one of the key problems that we face now is how can I interact with all this big data? We have a dashboard on my tablet or my smartphone, but it's too small. We have uh, NLP, natural language processing algorithms that I can speak to a smart device and have access to this big data. Or I can interact with smart devices like uh, this thermostat and I can see the data. But one of the most expected breakthrough that is gonna appear is uh, through the use of AR and VR. I'm gonna be able to visualize big data on the physical world by connecting AR applications with Internet of Things networks. So accessibility to data is gonna be an immersive experience to us instead of having, let's say, a flat screen in front of us. That's all on my side. And um, obviously there is a list of conclusions that uh, you can see in your slide. And George, we can welcome questions and I hope you found the lecture interesting. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, George. Thank you very much, Chris. This was a really packed uh, session, but uh, at least for me, because I watched it more as a student, uh, uh, because I'm not an expert in these things, I found it uh, very fascinating. Just to let everyone know that this is quite a long presentation. You might have noticed that it's more than 70 slides, so we're going to mint it and have it available for you to claim as an NFT uh, as soon as possible. And obviously, both uh, Chris and George will be available for for questions offline as well on, on Viber or Twitter. So uh, we have a couple of minutes. I think we can take a couple of questions. Uh, one question is, uh, uh, okay, people are naturally confused with acronyms. So George, you started by trying to, to, to explain the differences between AR, VR, and MR. Uh, mm -hmm. A student is asking about XR, uh, which mm -hmm. is extended reality. Correct. Uh, I, I guess I know the answer to that question, but can you clarify the, the difference on how XR fits with the other acronyms and what uh, everything is? Yeah, uh, acronyms are, uh, and abbreviations are always a big issue. And sometimes there is uh, an overlap. Uh, extended reality, mixed reality, AR, uh, VR. I think that, uh, that we are gonna have a more dominant, uh, let's say, names focusing on VR, everything that has to do without any type of interaction in the physical world. So I'm totally isolated in a virtual experience. And then XR, I think, in my personal opinion, you know, that will include all the rest. But this is something that, uh, you know, we are gonna see different names probably coming in the near future. So. Me personally, I use VR, AR. Some other people are using XR. So it's uh, up to you to use the name that you prefer. Chris, any, any comment on Chris. that? 
might be able to provide. Well, I uh, I use VR for everything. <laughs> I, so okay, I case in point. Yeah. I personally like to keep it simple, and I I I just say, well, it's it's. I I think virtual reality is good enough if it's going to blend with you know. But who's to say what real reality is anyway? So keep it simple. Virtual reality is fine. XR, I have read uh, papers uh, which which say uh, just treat the X as a as a variable, just a placeholder. Yeah. So in the X, you can you can put whatever augmented. You can put the glasses. You can put immersive, um, and whatever comes next, you know. Uh, so I'd rather not confuse people. I'd rather not confuse people, and I, I would uh, either just go with VR or, or go with with what George just said. AR and VR are fine. I mean, it's it's good enough. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, the, the keep it simple. Uh, uh, I think principle applies here. Um, I'm mm -hmm. probably older than everyone around here and I've been around in the early days of the internet, the early days of mobile, the early days of crypto. And I've seen how acronyms are used and abused by, by consultants and vendors as they try to, to, to position their products and, uh, and differentiate themselves from competition. So sometimes we get, you know, bombarded with different acronyms that mostly mean if not completely the same, very similar things yeah, and tends, yeah. tends to be confusing. So yeah, I'm, I'm all in for simplicity. Um, and you know, as it happened with the internet, the the things that have real value, the, the names will stick. Others like, you know, the, the intranets we, we have been discussing back then in the 90s or everything will just disappear from the, from the, from the foreground. Okay, uh, another question. Both of you, especially George, I think, have mentioned a number of, uh, of of devices that are commercially available, announced, or in the process of being developed. And okay, we I guess most of us know about Oculus and stuff like that. But you mentioned things like haptic interfaces or treadmills or this actuator in the ear that will uh, alleviate the symptoms of motion sickness. Can you give us either of you a like a, a a a time horizon of when these things would hit the commercial market when we would see them i mean are, are they available in the market now are we expecting them in 2023 or is it like a five-year horizon thing christo should i go first yes go okay uh, the technology is already here uh, and obviously, there is a supply and demand, uh, you know, driver here. So the more the demand is going to grow from the end users, the technology will accelerate. We have seen cases that where the technology accelerated so fast, but the user adoption was not there. And this, from the business perspective, is you know sometimes not very uh, sustainable. But for the moment, technology is here to deliver, you know, acceptable levels of immersion and experience so it can be engaging for the end user so gloves that can improve uh, let's say haptic vr okay or treadmills uh, they already exist 
they might be hard to find because there is no mass production. There are no games, you know, still yet out there to let you experience, you know, with the use of a haptic glove, you know, the level of immersion that you want. So mm -hmm. there is the technology is here. The demand is coming. So we are going to see like a step-by-step -step, uh, growth. My personal sense is that, uh, you know, 2023, we're going to see much more evolution compared to 22 and more penetration of this type of technologies in our experiences. Yeah, so yeah, I tend to agree, but um, if you if you ask me which one of the AR or VR is going to hit a use case or a use scenario quicker, I think it's going to be augmented reality because of the you know, not everybody, as George mentioned, some people really do not like the sense of isolation that you get from immersive uh, tech, mm -hmm. you know. And I've been working with the tech for uh, quite a long time, and yeah, you don't find me putting on my headset. I'd like to kick back and watch a nice flat screen. Um, but imagine this, you've got... Um, augmented reality glasses and you kick back and you turn your room into a living cinema. Now, this is a use case. It, it flows with uh, larger and larger TV screens, for example, that everyone, every Christmas you're buying a bigger TV set. Well, at some point, you don't need to buy a TV set. Okay, you can have a shared experience with your family wearing a, a pair of glasses that you can take with you from one room to the next. Yeah, they, there could be a market for this in home entertainment, um, in terms of home entertainment. For business uses, absolutely, in the, you know, everything is there. Um, currently, it will get better. Haptics has fallen out. Um, uh, it's fallen out a little bit because, you know, it's clunky. It's too, the technology is, is too clunky to be um, viable at the, mm -hmm. at the moment. I remember the, the old haptic device was called the Phantom. Mm -hmm. If anyone would like to go back to the 1990s, the late 1990s, early 2000s so this was a little robot you put your finger into it and uh you could feel you could feel stuff and then and play around with uh, you know elastic effects etc um now we have the haptic gloves but i, I think yeah uh, the, this will be a while taking off i think it's a slow process let me let me take you a little bit further in the future then because uh, i have a question that i really like from one of our students and the question is what about brain computer interfaces how far away is that do you think i guess eventually we will tap directly into the optical part of the brain and bypass ar uh, spectacles or goggles uh, do you have any views on this that's already here is it okay yeah yeah, that, that's that's already here. So um, 
Okay, there is a printable. I have one uh, just here, and in fact, it's a thirty-two channel uh, a BCI with a, a printable uh, shell. So you could you get the three D model. You can you can print it, and you you get a pack from uh, Open BCI is the name of the company. Uh -huh. It was a Kickstarter from a, a few years ago, and the perfect use case is uh, as a motion motion device yeah uh, so uh, you can train it picks up uh, 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 skin um, currents on the, on the on the head on the, on the on the scalp uh, you can tra train it on the on the on the motor motors uh, the sensors of the, of the head uh, with repetitive movements and then you can associate the, those movements with movement in a in a virtual environment and people I've been doing that for for a few years now. Um, yeah, and there's also uh, it's used for paraplegics. Mm -hmm. So if if you have a case where you use it for a paraplegic in a wheelchair mm -hmm. to move their wheelchair, then you can for sure take this straight away and put it into a virtual environment. Fascinating. I didn't know we were so advanced in, in in BCI. Next time I am in your lab, you you need to show me this. <laughs> George, George, any views on that? Um, I think that uh, one of the enablers uh, of something really, really interesting is going to be 5G or you know 6G networks that will allow real-time uh, 360 video transfer. And uh, I remember that uh, a couple of years ago when I broke my leg, all right, I said I would pay anything if I could click on a person on a map, let's say on the top of a mountain that he or she is snowboarding with a 360 camera on her head, okay? And I can be with my broken leg in uh, my sofa of uh, my home in Greece and wear my VR headset and have the assured experience, real time, 360 high definition video. And the person is, you know, doing a nice downhill run for me while mm -hmm. I can't. So I think that um, when we are going to have uh, content creators, real-time, high-definition 360 video be able to be transferred, and headsets that can allow us to you know, consume this type of content, there's going to be a really, really interesting uh, application area. We are a little wow. bit uh, some, some, some years behind because the network... Uh, and the speed is not already there in many cases. Mm -hmm. In some, you know, dense urban environments, it is. But uh, I think this is going to be fascinating. And obviously, we need the 360 cameras in our smartphones. Awesome. Very, very interesting. Uh, one student is asking, what was the name of uh, the company that you mentioned, uh, Chris? I think it was OpenBCI, you said. You're muted. You're muted, I think. Open BCI. Open just... BCI. BCI for Brain Computer Interface. Great. Yeah. Okay. Uh, another question is, uh, if, if you were to pick like one uh, or the top difficulty, either technical or adoption related or regulatory or you know, whatever you want, uh, uh, to, to make these things, you know, uh, commercially viable and adopted by en masse, what do you think that the biggest obstacle 
uh, or obstacles are at the moment? Is it that we are, you know, missing technological uh, elements? Is it that we miss uh, applications, that we miss education? What is it that hasn't allowed augmented virtual reality to reach their full potential? Um, I, I think there are different there are different use cases for for each of them. Uh, I, I believe well, I, I saw a breakdown of sixty to forty on Meta's expenditure vis-a-vis uh, -vis the augmented reality expenditure versus virtual reality, and uh, I, I don't think it's the case that Meta, for example, is is building this closed world, and they you know they expect this closed world. This is not going to be the use case. It's not it's not going to be the you know the, what's going to break it um, for for this tech. I think this tech uh, will uh, gradually uh, it, uh, become pervasive through mm -hmm. everything that that we do. It, it, it's a slow process, and I don't think that there is going to be a, a, ma a massive uh, jump, in my personal opinion. I think what will happen is that we will just, I, I, I saw a visualization of this itself where, where somebody walks out of their living room and they are bombarded with augmentation, mm -hmm. right? So uh, in the streets where they walk, there's information, there's information regarding the street name, uh, there's in, uh, advertising. Once the advertisers get in there, oh, oh believe me, the, the things will take off. Um, people, I also saw in our cafeteria today uh, a, a pair of glasses which, um, you know, stop the glare from a screen. And I think the wearing of glasses like this, with a form factor like this, with computer graphics augmented, is, go is going to be the clincher. People will start mm. wearing these, they'll feel mm. comfortable wearing them, and we will have... Um, everywhere we go, there will be data. It will be data rich, and this is, this will be the metaverse, in, in my in, in my opinion. Very interesting, very interesting definition of the metaverse as well, uh, George. Any any final thoughts on this? Because I think this is this is our last question for for the day. I agree that uh, you know one of uh, the key obstacles you know to wear the glasses is because now we and all the processing power on top of the glass. What we need is a glass that it is like the one that we wear for our son or, you know, to improve our sight. So having uh, migrating all the processing power to another device, probably our smartphone, our, you know, uh, our um, smartwatch, and having uh, the acceptable level of uh, graphics and experience delivered in a normal glass, will open new horizons in the adoption of the services. And then, you know, wherever you are, you can see augmented information everywhere. Advertising, uh, you know, real-time information, navigation, mm -hmm. everything can make your life much easier. Fantastic. We're going to say we're going to say huge changes in the, in the coming years. And I, I agree with Chris that they will happen gradually and then uh, and then suddenly. Maybe when advertisers uh, pick up on <laughs> on this, and, and and we have a, a sudden influx of 
of applications all around us and then we, we will be chasing the applications instead of, the, of them chasing us. Anyway, thank you very much. This was a very fascinating uh, session. Thank you for being here. Thank you for sharing your expertise uh, with us and uh, looking forward to seeing you again in, in one of our future courses. Thank you very much, everyone. We'll see you next week you. with uh, week 10. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.